the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Folks, welcome again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, your Plugged in right here to AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. And we're always so happy when you join us. So is Pete Paquette. He's the engineer of the show. Andrew Herdliska produces the show. And it's a real pleasure, folks. O.S. Hawkins, former pastor of Historic First Baptist Church in Dallas. He's got uh, a long heritage in Florida. Uh, President Emeritus of Guidestone Financial Resources. And his book is out, The Connection Code, Relationship Advice from Philemon. OS, it's so good to catch up with you. Welcome to Orlando. Thanks, Pat. Great to hear your voice and uh, love love that state you live in. <clears throat> Tell me about your interest in a whole book about Philemon. I'm, I'm fascinated. Well, you, you know, this is just, this is the 14th in a series of these code devotional books we've done, uh-huh. starting out with. <clears throat> the Joshua Code, 52 Scripture verses every believer should know, and the Jesus Code, 52 Scripture questions every believer should answer. But, you know, when I got when I got right down to it, <clears throat> reading Philemon, it is a case study. You know, most of the great things we found, uh, leadership principles, uh, come out of the past, whether it's Sun Tzu, the great Chinese warrior. He's made his way into briefcases and boardrooms all over America. Uh, or what Wes Roberts did with Attila the Hun, but out of the past comes this little piece of private correspondence from Paul to a man named Philemon, and it is a case study in the dynamic of interpersonal relationships because, Pat, life is really all about relationships. OS, that's how you open your book. Life is about relationships, the eternal connection, the internal connection, the external connection, fill us in. Well, you only have, we only have three relationships in life. Uh, we have an outward expression. That's a relationship we have with each other in the social arena, at home, at the office, <clears throat> at church. We're made to connect with one another. You know, at the end of every great creative act, God spoke. He said, that's good, that's good, that's good. Then he made man. He said something else. He said, not good. It's not good what? for man to be alone. We're made to connect with each other. So we have that outward expression. Then we have an inward expression. That's the relationship we have with ourselves, self-worth, self-respect, whatever you want to call it. But what goes wrong in our outward relationships is often what's going on inside us. But there's one other relationship, and it's an awesome thought. It's what separates us from all the other created order, and that is that we have the capacity to enter into an upward relationship with God through Jesus Christ, know him in the intimacy of father and child. And here's the bottom line. We're never going to be properly related to each other until we're properly related to ourselves. And that's never going to happen until we find our self-worth in Christ by coming to know him, as Paul said, Christ in me, the hope of glory. So that's basic thesis of the book. And it's all about these three relationships. O.S. Hawkins is our guest, the book, The Connection Code. Uh, O.S., we've arrived at part two, a pat on the back, a word of appreciation, authenticity, aspiration, anticipation, admiration, affirmative, application. Uh, uh, Pastors love to work with those same letters, don't they? (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Well, it helps helps people follow it a little bit sometimes. But, you know, this is a letter that Paul is now in, in prison. He, he 
on a trip to Colossae, led Philemon to Christ. Philemon's a wealthy person there and started a church in his home. And he got ripped off by one of his workers by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus went to Rome, the right lights. He got incarcerated, and by a certain circumstance, uh, coincidence, quote-unquote, he ended up in the the cell with Paul. Paul led him to Christ. Now Onesimus is going to go back to Philemon to make amends, and Paul writes Philemon this letter. It is, Pat, it's a case study in how we should relate to each other. And after his greetings, he says in in the first paragraph, he says, your love has given me great hope and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. A pat on the back. You know, if, if I got a letter or you got a letter and that first paragraph somebody said something like that, you want to read the rest of the letter. And this, this element of a pat on the back, affirmation, is so vitally important. You know, there's some of our listeners right now that hadn't had anybody affirm them perhaps in years. And there's a dynamic power that comes when we affirm one another and a pat one another on the back. I had a high school English teacher that changed the way I thought about myself with one simple pat on the back. And when we look at the life of Jesus, that's basically what Jesus did. He went around affirming people. He caught a woman, I came upon a woman caught in adultery, and, and he reached down, patted her on the back, and said, where are your accusers? She said, no man accuses me. He said, I don't, I don't condemn you. Go and send no more. Patted her on. She followed him all the way to the cross. Mm. And uh, this, is, this is just what he did throughout, uh, throughout his life. And even when he was baptized, the father, spoke from heaven with a pat on the back. This is my beloved son. In him, I'm well pleased. So there's a dynamic power in affirming people and giving pats on the back. Part three, the win-win principle. Be sensitive, be submissive, be supportive, be sensible. And the result? Tell us more. Yeah. You know, in in the next paragraph, he says to Philemon, look, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. He once was not unprofitable. Now he's profitable to you and to me. This is that win-win principle that, that Stephen Covey talked about 40 years ago in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's the way some people have relationships. Some people have win-lose relationships. In other words, I'll have a relationship with you if I win everything, argument, and you lose everything. Some people have such little self-worth, they play lose-win. Not, they were always putting somebody else on a pedestal thinking that's going to make them like them. And, and some play lose-lose. They just lost so much in life. They're not going to have a relationship with anybody. It's not a loser themselves. But the way to build relationships is affirmation and playing win-win, where when you win, I win. And it, it, it's a mutually, like, like Paul said, now he's profitable to you and to me. Everybody wins. O.S. Hawkins, writing about his book, The Connection Code. Uh, Part four, burying the hatchet. The offending party, the offended party, and it came to pass. It takes two. Total forgiveness, O.S. Yeah, you know, this is a missing element in a lot of relationships, Pat, and that is the ability ability to to forgive. you know, two things have to happen for reconciliation. Uh, on the part of the offending party, the person who brought about the offense, they have to have a truly repentant heart. And the, the offended party must have a truly receptive heart. And, you know, as a pastor for decades, what I found in broken relationships was that most, most of the time it wasn't the fact that that offending party wasn't repentant. That offended party just couldn't bring themselves to forgive and 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 to get and so that that this this paragraph in this chapter deals with conflict resolution and how to how to come to come to come to forgiveness i had a kid that grew up on my street in fort worth and he'd come to the vacant lot to play ball with us every week and these shoelaces were we wore those old black high top kid or converse tennis shoes but his shoelaces only went about halfway up the shoe because he was so impulsive that when he'd get a knot in his shoelace, he'd just take his pocket knife out and cut it off and keep tying it down there. Well, uh, the point of the matter is, in relationships, we should never cut what we can untie. And so it just takes time to untie certain broken relationships, and, and the key is forgiveness.
forgiveness. Why is forgiveness so hard for many of us to do? Uh, you know, uh, Pat, I suppose it's because of the offended spirit. You know, we <clears throat> we see that in the uh, in the elder brother that Jesus told about in Luke fifteen. Uh, it, 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 when we're when we feel offended and shortened by someone, it, it, it just it it perverts our perspective. He said, he said to his daddy, he said, you never, you never gave me a kid, a billy goat to cut. Well, they were killing the fatted calf, but when you're offended, you, you lose all perspective. And, and I think that's a big part of it. Uh, you know, my friend R.T. Kendall, I, I'm sure you've probably had R.T. on your program. He's written a book called Total Forgiveness. That's one of the most powerful books and one of the most liberating actions that we could ever take. Mm. My guest is O.S. Hawkins. Uh, he's in Dallas, and uh, what a book he's written. Part five, <clears throat> Crossing the Rubicon of Relationships. Step one, openness. Step two, obligation. Step three, objectivity. Step four, optimism. Step five, observation. Boy, there's a lot there, O.S. What's going on? Well, this next paragraph, he's talked about affirmation in relationships. He's talked about this mutually beneficial win-win relationship. He's talked about the power of forgiveness. Now he talks about one of the missing elements in relationships, Pat, and that is uh, that is commitment, commitment to one another. And we call it crossing the Rubicon because in 49 uh, B.C., when Julius Caesar came to the Rubicon, when he crossed that river to march on Rome, there was no turning back. I mean, you cross that river, you have made a commitment, and you're not coming back. And so I think that's one of the missing elements in relationships. Now, put yourself in Philemon's place when he's reading this, because in this next, in this paragraph, Paul writes to him, says, listen, if he's wronged you or done anything to you, charge it to my account. I'll take I'll take care of it. Well, when Philemon re- read that, he said, "Uh oh, he's he's committed to Onesimus," and so that that element of commitment is is one of the real missing elements uh, in, in relationships. You know, uh, whether it's with our husbands and wives, our friends, uh, whatever. My guest is O.S. Hawkins, and when we come back. We're going to talk about part six, the book, The Connection Code. Uh, My name is Pat Williams. This is the Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend on AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We will be right back with O.S. Hawkins. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. O.S. Hawkins joins us from Dallas, Texas. And we're talking about his book, The Connection Code, Relationship Advice from Philemon. And uh, as mentioned, O.S., accountability is part six. Don't leave home without it. Accountability involves insight. Accountability involves hindsight. Accountability involves foresight. I want to hear all about this. Well, Pat, uh, you you talk about a missing element in relationships. <clears throat> it's it's accountability. Being accountable to someone in a relationship. You know, I have a car. Like most of us are blessed to have a car, but every every. 10,000 miles, I take it back to where I bought it, and they they do a checkup on everything in it. Uh, we have, Susie and I were fortunate to own our own home, and the other day we had to repair some eaves. The roof wasn't leaking, but some of the wood was rotting, and we had to go in there and repair that. I have a body, now not much, not as much as what I used to have, but every year I go to Cooper Clinic. I've been going for four, over 40 years every year, have a complete physical, mm. because what goes wrong with my car or my house or my body usually does because of one word, and that's neglect. You know, we, we, we call it preventive maintenance. And so if that's good for cars and houses and physical things, it's really important for relationships. 
So if, if you'll see what, what how, how Paul concludes this letter to Philemon, he says, uh, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will gradually be given to you. Now, when, when Philemon read that, you know, now he's written this whole letter telling him to forgive Onesimus, to take him back, not as a slave, but as his brother. And he's, and he's affirmed him. He's done all this stuff. Now he closes by saying, oh, by the way, get the guest room ready. I'm coming by. Well, when he said that, you know what Philemon said to himself? He said, uh-oh, he's going to come by and check up on me. He's going to come by and hold me accountable. And in relationships, that we all need this element of accountability, so, so vitally important. Uh, in, in our relationships, uh, you know, I've, I've always, in my own life, <clears throat> things happened for me early. Uh, I was pastoring some wonderful churches at a very young age, and things, and I always made it a point to have older friends because I could seek their wise counsel. They could hold me accountable. And uh, Susie and I have been married over 50 years now. And I can tell you, I'm, I'm accountable to her. I just don't go everywhere I want to, anytime I want to. And uh, we all need this element of what Paul talks about here, about accountability. O.S. Hawkins has put together a marvelous book, The Connection Code. So, O.S., uh, what, do you, what do you want us to take from all this? What do you want us to take from the book and, and our chat here? Well, here's what I love. Here's why I wrote the book. <clears throat> so that people could understand that the most important relationship in life is the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. There are only three relationships in life, that outward expression, the inward expression, the upward expression, and the bottom line again is we're never going to really be properly related to each other until we're, we're properly related to ourselves. And until we begin to find self-worth in Christ in us, and come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We will never find that. I mean, this is this is what this is the the beautiful picture of you know. This is what you remember when someone came to Jesus one time. And he said, Matt, "Good Master, what's the greatest of all the commandments?" And he put those three relationships in the great commandment. He said, uh, "Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself." So. Love God with all your heart. Love yourself. Love your neighbor. <clears throat> so he put them all in that. But an interesting thing happened, Pat, the night before the crucifixion. He said, I'm leaving you, but a new commandment give I unto you, that you love one another, no longer on the level of that old commandment of Leviticus, love your neighbor as you love yourself. He said, a new commandment give I unto you, that you love one another as I have loved. For 33 years, they saw a picture of true love. And when he left them, <laughs> until then, the best they could do was live on the level of that old commandment, loving others as they love themselves. Some of us have a problem with that because we have no self-love. But Jesus then said, listen, here's a new commandment, never been given before. Love one another as I have loved you, selfish, selflessly, sacrificially, sanctifyingly, and this is really the message of Philemon, that uh, when we come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we begin to find our self-worth and not what we've accomplished, but Christ in us, as Paul said to Colossians, the hope of glory. And then we translate that love and that life to, to those uh, who are all around us. O.S. Hawkins is, uh, had a long career as a pastor and as an author. Uh, tell me more about this series, OS. You, you mentioned that uh, this finally well, is you, part man. of a series. Yeah, you know, it started out about 10 years ago, and <clears throat> we're so blessed. These devotional books have now sold over 3 million copies, and they're published by Thomas Nelson. And I can talk about it, Pat, because I don't take a dime of royalties or proceeds from them. All the, all the royalties and proceeds from all the code books, devotional books, go to Mission Dignity. You know, we're on a mission here in a ministry in Dallas to bring dignity to some forgotten people. And that's retired pastors and 60% of 
people in our program are widows of pastors. They pastor out in the crossroads, the highways and hedges, never made enough to live on, much less retire on. And 10 years ago, we were able to give them $50 a month, help them with a little medicine. Now, these books have sold so many copies that the neediest among them now get $700 a month. And one little widow, 87 years old, wrote me the other day, and she said, I get to eat at night now, and it's not just a piece of toast. So wow. every time somebody buys one of these code books, the proceeds go to support these great old soldiers of the cross. So, yeah, it started when I when I came to the burden that people weren't memorizing Scripture anymore. You know, I know a lot of people just don't memorize Scripture. We used to. And so I picked 52 verses in the Bible. You know, a lot of new believers, the Bible is just a big book. They don't know where to start. They start in Genesis, and they get bogged down. They start in Matthew. They got introduced to dozens of names they can't pronounce. And so I picked 52 verses in the Bible. If you know these verses, memorize one a week. And if you know these verses, you'll know the theme of the Bible. And we called it the Joshua Code. 52 scripture verses every believer said, I and Pat, it just took off. It's so now it's so almost a half a million copies by itself. Mm. And then, so then I'm devotionally reading and I come across this. I've seen this a thousand times, but I never saw it. How many times Jesus asked questions in the Bible? He was always asking questions. And yet he had all the knowledge because it was his way of teaching us. And so I picked 52 questions in the Bible that every believer ought to answer before they go to heaven. We call it the Jesus Code. And then we have the Bible Code, Finding Jesus in Every Book of the Bible, the Promise Code, 40 Bible promises every believer should claim, the, the, the Prayer Code, 40 Bible prayers every believer should pray. And there are 15 of them now. And uh, the Connection Code here is the latest in that offering. And you can find out more about them at oshawkins.com. Uh, and uh, find more about Mission Dignity there also. OS, we have about three minutes left. I want you to teach us about the Holy Spirit, why it's so important, how it relates to our Christian life, and uh, and just uh, give us a little pep talk. Well, Pat, <laughs> excuse me, but I'm going to tell you something that's, that's amazing. You know what I'm doing right now? No. I'm I'm writing the next code, and it's 40 chapters on the Holy Spirit. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's 40 chapters on the Holy Spirit. And, uh, well, the night before the crucifixion, what Jesus said, he said, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to send you another comforter who will abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And uh, this is this is uh, this is how you know Jesus said, "Greater works will I will you do than I've done because I go to the Father." Well, it's because He sent the Holy Spirit, and when He said, "I'm going to send you another Comforter," there there are two words in Greek that we translate another. Uh, one is heteros. Heteros. It means another of a different kind. We get our word heterosexual from that. Here's a man. Here's a woman. They're people, but they're and there's another one, alas which means same make and same model. I mean, if I had a Mont Blanc black pen right here and I held up a plastic bic that I've got in my hand right now at my desk, I said, here's a pen, here's another. I would use heteros. It's a pen, but it's another kind. But if I had an identical Mont Blanc pen to the one I had, I would I would use all us. I would say, here's a pen and here's a here's one of a, 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 a another pen, same make, same model. And that's the word Jesus used. When he said, I'm going to send you another comforter. He's me. He's the same mate. He's the same model, the Holy Spirit. You know, Pat, the Holy Spirit didn't just show up at Pentecost. He he was there back in the very beginning. The Spirit of God brooded over the waters. And so it's the beautiful, beautiful message of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and uh, the Holy Spirit, who is our comforter, who convicts us of sin, who convinces us of righteousness, who draws us to Christ, who illumines the Word to us. I mean, we couldn't we couldn't live a moment without uh, the power and person of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So that's actually the next code, the Spirit Code, 40, 40 uh, Bible truths about the Holy Spirit. Well, O.S., when that comes out, I hope I can uh, rebook you. And, uh, Good. Well, and, we'll look forward to it, and I certainly thank you for 
give me the opportunity to share with all the good folks down there in the Orlando area. O.S. Hawkins has been our guest, former pastor of the historic First Baptist Church in Dallas, uh, spent many years in the Fort Lauderdale area as a pastor, and the book we've talked about, The Connection Code, Relationship Advice from Philemon. We learned a lot about him today. We've got more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us right here on AM 990. FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. will be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. Now, here's Pat. O.S. Hawkins, our guest in that first segment. A nice visit with him talking about his book, The Connection Code. Well, we go from Dallas, Texas to Hillsdale, Michigan. Hillsdale College is there, and D.G. Hart is our guest, author of From Billy Graham to Sarah Palin, Evangelicals and the Betrayal of American Conservatism. D.G., welcome to Orlando. I'm uh, looking forward to visiting with you. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Um, Before we get into this book, tell me, about Hillsdale College, uh, to one who's never been there. I want to hear about this. Sure. It is uh, a a relatively small liberal arts uh, college that is uh, very Christian-friendly, and I think on paper we are a Christian institution, though there is not a particular one church that uh, uh, we're affiliated with. There are a lot of Protestants and Roman Catholics, and uh, we have very good working relations. It's probably it's the, definitely the best uh, place that I've I've worked and taught. But we we give a serious education in the great books overall. Um, but we also have uh, Division Two athletics. We have uh, vigorous uh, art and theater and music programs. Um, so it's a great place to be. How did this book come about? I was working at a uh, an educational institution called the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, which was founded way back in roughly 1953 when American conservatism, under the leadership of William F. Buckley Jr., more or less got started. That's when Russell Kirk, another prominent American conservative, uh, wrote a book called The Conservative Mind. It was a New York Times book uh, bestseller. William F. Buckley, Jr. was a relatively young man then, and he was a president of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute uh, for a brief time. Anyway, I was working there. I became more aware of uh, American conservatism in that 1950s moment and the way it had evolved. And having worked in Protestant circles, for a while at places like Wheaton College and Westminster Seminary. Uh, I saw some connections, but I also saw some discontinuities, and so I wanted to to explore that. The introduction of your book, D.G., Irreconcilable Differences? Question mark? Evangelicals and American Conservatives. What are you writing in the intro? Well... <laughs> The the uh, American cons- conservative world in the 1950s, you could identify with uh, three strains. There would have been um, anti-communists, there would have been uh, libertarians emphasizing um, small government, and then you would have had some, some kind of um, virtue-oriented people uh, wanting to promote civil society that would encourage the virtues. And then later on, as part of the conservative movement, especially during the Reagan era, you have neoconservatives who have a certain view of American foreign policy and maintaining American uh, interests as well as American um, power for the sake of world order, not simply for the sake of American power. And then another group that came along was uh, the, the so-called Christian right or new Christian right or religious right, depending on the the word choice you want to use. Jerry Falwell had been associated with that mainly because of his um, presidency 
in the organization called Majority, which lasted maybe um, about five or so years from 1979 and into the Reagan era. Um, and that was responsible in many ways for organizing evangelical Protestants who weren't really a political um, interest group necessarily. They voted, they were active in politics in different ways, but they hadn't really been herded into some kind of, uh, uh, to one of the parties necessarily. And the, the religious right more or less moved into the Republican Party. Republican leaders were responsible responsible for that as well. But that meant that the to get to the irreconcilable part of that uh, title is to to question whether evangelicals who became conservative, say, in the 1980s, if they understood the origins of the movement in the 1950s. And um, I don't know that <clears throat> that evangelicals have really ever caught up, gotten up to speed with some of the political and historical arguments that conservatives were making back in the 1950s. They were certainly willing to talk about the kind of biblical and moral ways of evaluating American society and government, but the other arguments maybe weren't as readily uh, available to them. My guest is D.G. Hart, the book from Billy Graham to Sarah Palin, Chapter 1, Silent Minority. What are you writing there, D.G.? Um, talking about the... Um, the way in which evangelicals were a kind of neglected group prior to um, uh, the, the 1970s, that they uh, had a history, um, say, going back to the so-called fundamentalist controversy in the 1920s. Um, they were perceived in some ways as opting out of politics and not being very interested, although uh, one of the most famous incidents of the uh, 1920s, the Scopes trial, uh, which was very political, um, and William Jennings Bryan, who was a very prominent fundamentalist and something of a hero to evangelicals, um, he w he ran for president three times on the Democratic side. Um, he lost all three times, but still, that's pretty notable achievement. So it's 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 a kind of an odd thing to to think of that evangelicals were. Uh, um, outside of politics, but anyway, the chapter's trying to explain where Protestants were in the period, um, say, between the 1920s and, and the 1950s. Uh, and the, the 1950s are important because that's when Billy Graham himself becomes a, um, a public figure, even a celebrity, and, um, and that's when people begin to pay more attention to these these uh, Protestants called evangelical. Let's move to chapter two, young and leftist. What's that mean? <laughs> oh, boy. I, I, it's been a while since I wrote this book, and now I'm kind of surprised that some of the t choices I made. But um, uh, that is about, um, in the 1960s, 1970s, on the campuses of American uh, of evangelical colleges, you did see the beginnings of uh, some attraction to the Democratic Party, the George McGovern, who ran for president in 1972. Uh, some of this fueled by um, objections to the Vietnam War. And um, some of the college faculty as well at these institutions gathered in Chicago, I believe it was in 1973, to issue a statement on of social concern about the various uh, controversies in American politics at the time. And, um, and so there was, a, there was actually a thought, a hope, that maybe evangelicals would become a, um, a democratic-leaning uh, group and that they would, they would find their political outlet on the left side of the political spectrum. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't happen at all. Uh, most of your listeners probably know that. There's still, there are still some uh, people who write about evangelical history, who teach in American uh, history, who, who wish that that had happened, that evangelicals had moved to the left. And there was, there was a chance that it would, would happen, but it didn't. Now, uh, DG, I want you to tell us about part three of your book, 
the search for a usable past. Uh, explain that. Well, this is a chapter about the bicentennial mm. and um, and the way in which evangelical, not necessarily historians, popular writers, but writing the history of the American founding uh, and writing about it in ways to explain the Christian presence in it. And it may be, you know, useful for people, I don't want to try to... to uh, hawk the book here. But, I mean, I'd actually be kind of interested to go back and read about this, because we are coming up on the 250th anniversary of the American founding in 2026. We're not that far away. The federal government is even making plans to to memorialize that, commemorate in some way. But anyway, this is about what, how evangelicals were thinking about the founding in 1976. And it's a way of thinking about, too, the degree to which they were um, tracking with the kind of political arguments that people like James Madison or Thomas Jefferson or John Adams or, or even George Washington were making in thinking about American government, what its responsibilities are, how much the citizens themselves have to step up and lead virtuous lives. And then even uh, about America's uh, involvement uh, in the rest of the world and responsibility for the rest of the world, uh, the, Ameri- the, the politics of the American founders, I think, sometimes would even surprise American conservatives. Now, uh, tell us about Party Crashers, part four. Uh, <laughs> this is um, uh, about the... the 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 kind of uh, intellectual um, a lot of this is about intellectuals people who are writing books and and the like but this is about the moral majority the people who were mm. um, uh, who were entering into the political fray as it were joining ranks with the Republican Party and again they weren't necessarily what what party crashers means and it's a phrase from one of the People who was on their side, on the on the evangelical side, a fellow by the name of Richard John Newhouse, he had a um, he was defending fundamentalists and evangelicals for for joining the ranks of conservatism, but he he knew that they didn't necessarily have the the manners in the sense that they didn't know all the jargon, the way government worked, uh, the, the the kind of compromises you need to make sometimes, and so they were look they. They came across as being out of their element. So this is about that period when you see um, evangelicals having some uh, some sway in the Republican Party, but mainly because of their numbers, not necessarily because of their policy prescriptions or their ability to um, persuade people with power. D.G. Hart is our guest. we got to take a break, D.G. But when, sure, we, sorry. when we come back, I want you to talk about the faith-based right. Uh, I'm Pat Williams. This is the Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. D.G. Hart teaches history at Hillsdale College in Michigan. His book, From Billy Graham to Sarah Palin. Okay, as I mentioned, uh, D.G., the faith-based right. What's that mean? Well, this is a chapter about uh, three or four writers who were writing about American uh, politics in the 1980s and 1990s. Among them, um, people like Chuck Colson. Uh, some of your listeners may, especially if they're older, may remember Chuck Colson sure. from the Nixon administration and who went down in the Watergate scandal, was connected to it, and then had a conversion experience in prison came out and led a um, an evangelical ministry called, I think, Prison Ministries. But he also uh, wrote a lot of books. He had um, commentary on the radio. Um, and he worked with this fellow who I was mentioning 
in the last segment, Richard John Newhouse, to uh, try to bring Roman Catholics and Protestants together for, for various causes. Uh, but he, so this is a chapter about his writings about politics um, and about the place of Christianity in politics. Another figure, though, that also became um, uh, important to think to uh, evangelical conservatives who were thinking about government, and this is a man who had um, the ear of uh, George W. Bush um, in the early parts of his administration in the aughts, um, Marvin Oleski, who was teaches, uh, who used to teach journalism, I think, at University of Texas. He was really the person uh, responsible for the phrase compassionate conservatism, which is something that George Bush, Bush adopted both as governor of Texas and then as president of the United States until 9-11 happened and sort of forced the administration into some other uh, endeavors. But um, So this is a chapter about those writers and what they were saying about American government and also trying to m map the degree to which they were um, – uh, say, reinforcing or echoing the ideas among American conservatives, again, those conservatives who had started out in the 1950s. Now let's move to left turn, your sixth topic. Uh, so this is um, a chapter, again, there, there, there is within the uh, evangelical world, especially in the ranks of the uh, evangelical faculty who teach at uh, colleges and universities and some pastors, um, there is, is a, a, a movement uh, or an inclination to think about American society more from the perspective of the Democratic Party or the, the left side of the political spectrum than, um, than, say, the right side, and oftentimes also to use the Bible, the New Testament, and Jesus' words from the New Testament to, to, to argue for the rights of the poor, the rights of the oppressed, victims, and the like, using passages from the Old Testament as well in the Bible. And figures uh, in, in this, in this um, group include people like Jim Wallace, who we don't hear about much anymore, but he was the founder of a magazine called Sojourners and a Community in uh, Washington, D.C., very much uh, engaged with uh, trying to help out inner-city poor, um, but also some professors like Randy Balmer, who now teaches at um, Dartmouth College, an Ivy League institution, and has tried to argue uh, against a, a conservative element in the evangelical world, and he's trying to tell the history of evangelicalism in a way that features um, a more, uh, I guess, progressive uh, and liberal way of understanding American politics and the responsibilities of government. Now, uh, DG, I want you to teach us about conservatism without heroism. Uh, what's all that mean? <laughs> well, this is a chapter that kind of tries to... Um, kind of conclude the history that I, I'm charting, which is, again, a history of the way that evangelicals were thinking about American government and drawing out contrasts with uh, the, the wider conservative world, both in think tanks and, and in the Republican Party. And the heroism here refers to um, a book that Michael Gerson, recently, relatively recently deceased, who was uh, a a columnist at the Washington Post, but before that he was a speechwriter for George W. Bush. And he, uh, after he left the government, he wrote a book called Heroic Conservatism. Um, and it, he, he was trying to make a make a point about what conservatism should look like, and he was trying to do it from a Christian perspective. And um, the book was, I guess, an echo of uh, the compassionate conservatism that George W. Bush had initially talked about. But, but Gerson, I think the point of the chapter is to try to show that Gerson really was far removed from the talking points that had made conservative politics conservative, such as uh, small government, such as um, uh, 
strong military, such as low taxes. I mean, those are cliches perhaps now, but, but those were really important pieces of separatism in the 1950s and 60s that, that first uh, backed Barry Goldwater uh, in 1964 in a very uh, colossally disastrous way as far as his, his own su- success in that election, but then was responsible for getting Ronald Reagan elected to two terms in the 1980s. And, uh, and, and you know, I think the chapter is also trying to show that there were some, some important differences between George W. Bush and Ronald Reagan and the, the kinds of conservatism that Bush was embracing, whether in the form of a heroic conservatism or a compassionate conservatism, didn't quite have some of the muscle maybe that Ronald Reagan's conservatism did. In the uh, conclusion, you ask a question. Why should evangelicals be conservative? Yes, and I ask that in part because I think um, most Christians, uh, evangelical or um, mainline Protestant or Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, would likely say that they have a higher degree of loyalty to, to the church or to God or to Christ than they do to uh, a political movement. Um, But so the chapter is really trying to remind uh, evangelicals, at least, the ones who are reading, of our responsibilities as citizens of this country, uh, the kind of traditions that this country has, political and otherwise, the kind of responsibilities the nation has uh, to the world as emerging as a global power, whether for good or ill, that's the situation that confronts the United States. So all of those are reasons why being good neighbors, being good citizens, uh, evangelicals might want to consider the way that conservatives have thought about the purpose and function of government, also about the nature of being citizens and the other kinds of responsibilities that citizens have in a society like ours. I'm, I'm curious about the title, From Billy Graham to Sarah Palin. Where does Miss Sarah fit in here? Well, <laughs> it, was, it was kind of an odd choice because she was an odd choice when John McCain chose her in 2008. When I wrote the book, she was still on a lot of people's minds. Um, she was still a prominent figure. I don't know what is up with her as much today, but she was also an evangelical of a kind. I mean, she was, I think, a Pentecostal, still is a Pentecostal Christian of a kind. And I'm not trying to identify people with certain labels and, and, and not explain what that means, but um, but she she was identifiably evangelical. I think that's one of the reasons why John McCain chose her to try to reach out to that part of the the uh, Republican base, as it were. And um, and so putting those two together, Billy Graham, who was iconic as a figure in the evangelical world, um, and then Sarah Palin, a latecomer, an odd choice in many, in many ways. I think it was to try to underscore um, the subtitle of the book, which is The, uh, the Betrayal of American Conservatism. Um, and I, that's not met, that's not a commentary on Palin herself that she was a betrayal because I think initially she had some promise as a potential vice president and some pretty good responses, but then she may have subsequently, with her career after that, kind of run off the rails, in my estimation. But that's just my own political opinion, and I haven't followed her closely. But that was uh, again back when the book came out. I believe it was in. 2011, yes. So that's only three years removed from the 20, 2008 election, and um, someone like Sarah Palin still made sense to editors and publishers and even authors at the time, although I think now the title looks a little strange. DG, what do you want people to take from uh, from your book? Oh, I think to be smart about politics, um, which is even uh, more challenging now after the 2016 election and 2020 and COVID. uh, It's amazing the changes that have happened since then. But um, 
I think uh, there's this kind of sobriety that American conservatives at least used to have. I still think they have that I think evangelicals, but other people could also have. I think there's a lot of hysteria right now, sometimes created by social media and media more generally. Um, I, I'd like to see people be a little bit more hesitant to react. Uh, I think that's what was the in the best parts of conservatism. Um, and I, th- I think evangelicals have struggled with that sometimes. There's been a kind of uh, righteous indignation, which is admirable in certain ways, but when it comes to politics, you have to be a little bit more measured. So I, I, that would be something I'd like to see people take away from the book. D.G. Hart has been our guest. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We'll see you next weekend right here at AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word in Orlando. Have a wonderful week ahead. God bless you. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.